Hello and welcome back to Research Matters, our podcast produced at UNICEF's Office of Research Innocenti in Florence, Italy. I'm Kathleen Sullivan, a communication specialist here, and today I'm talking to one of our most revered researchers and resident expert on caste transfers, Tia Palermo, again. So welcome back, Tia. Great to be here. So we wanted to grab you one last time because you're no stranger to our podcast series here. We've had some really great in-depth discussions on violence against women and Cash Plus research project in Tanzania. But um, we also wanted to take the opportunity to share with our listeners just a few more insights with you um, from you before you go on what you've learned here while at UNICEF Innocenti and also where you see research on cash transfers and social protection going. Why don't you tell us a little brief history about your time here and what you've accomplished in that period? It's been an amazing five years here at Innocenti. I joined to work on the social and economic policy team, working specifically on the transfer project, which is a multi-organizational initiative between UNICEF, FAO, and the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. We work very closely with our UNICEF country office partners and governments and local research institutions to conduct large-scale impact evaluations of social protection programs and cash transfers specifically to look at how those affect the well-being of children and households and communities. And we do a lot of different work looking at different dimensions of well-being. We look at poverty reduction, food security, health, education. And we do this in 10 countries in sub-Saharan Africa. And so it's been really great to be able to conduct very rigorous research here at Innocenti and work very closely with our country office partners. So we get a lot of opportunity to go to the field and to see how these cash transfers are being implemented in practice and see the households uh, that are participating in these programs and get to talk to participants directly and see how they feel about the programs and their needs and what they're doing with the government programs. And we work also, in addition to creating that evidence and sharing that evidence, we work very closely with our partners on the ground to be able to feed back into the programming. And so at all stages of the research, we share the findings, we discuss the findings with government and local researchers, and get their interpretation of it and really have a very engaged discussion to see how the programs can be improved, how they're working well, where they're not working well, and areas for improvement. Yes, and thank you. I mean, everyone here knows how hard you've worked uh, on this research and cash transfers. Related to that, I wanted to follow up and ask, what, in your opinion, has been the biggest development in social protection research during your tenure at UNICEF and Intenti, what have you seen based on the evidence from the cash transfers research? That's a really tough question to answer because really the research field in social protection has been taking off exponentially and there's so much exciting new work coming out all the time from our researchers, from other researchers in the field. I think one of the things that we've tried really hard is to match the research to where policymakers are at. And sometimes that involves taking a step back. So it's not always pushing for the most innovative new research question or the most innovative new methodology. But filling gaps? <clears throat> filling gaps, yeah. We do a lot of filling gaps. 
but we also respond to some of the questions that policymakers have. And so, for example, even though there's a lot of evidence out there um, battling perhaps some of the myths that people have about cash transfers, so oftentimes the barriers to implementing and scaling up cash transfer programs are policymakers' beliefs about what households will do with those cash transfers. So for example, will cash make people lazy and stop working? Will they spend it on alcohol? Will there be a backlash? And so even though there's a lot of evidence on those questions, we've um, analyzed the data that we have from our programs in Sub-Saharan Africa, and we've provided more evidence. We've added to that evidence base showing that in fact, those concerns are unwarranted and people spend the cash in very responsible ways, they become more productive. And so we've done a series of work around what we call myth busting. And, and that's one you're really proud of. That's one that we're really proud of, yeah, that um, I was personally involved with and also very excited about. In addition to the myth busting, another key innovation that's happening in country offices with governments and UNICEF country offices working very closely with governments is trying to understand where are the gaps. So cash transfers have very positive impacts on food security and poverty reduction, schooling, and also a lot of other broader impacts around mental health. We've seen that they've been able to delay pregnancies, for example, for adolescent girls in some countries. And so these are very positive findings that giving cash transfers to households enables them to mitigate against some of these vulnerabilities and really improve the lives of families and children in those households. But at the same time, cash transfers have limitations to what they can do. And a lot of those limitations are basically determined by some of the contextual factors and the limited opportunities and services that people have in their communities. And so we're trying to better understand, based on the questions that are coming from our colleagues in UNICEF offices around the region, trying to understand, well, if cash transfers don't necessarily reduce stunting, what else can we do to leverage that cash to reduce stunting? And so country offices are increasingly starting to implement what is called integrated social protection programming or sometimes referred to as cash plus. So if you add complementary interventions or provide linkages to services, how can that boost the effects of cash and can that have an effect on some of these outcomes that perhaps cash alone is not successful in mitigating against? And so a lot of these have to do with vulnerabilities that adolescents face. And we see that country offices in Malawi and Zambia, Tanzania, they're all looking at how can you link participants in cash transfer programs who tend to be among the most marginalized members of society, how can you link them to other services to integrate them into those services and really mitigate against some of the adverse outcomes that we see in adolescents? Great. And, and so building on that and all of the work we're doing on building evidence and working with our country offices, taking that a step further, in the last five years that you've been working on this research, have you seen any changes in policymaking regarding social protection? 
We've seen a lot of policy uptake of the evidence. We know that policymaking is not a linear process, that there are, we as researchers can provide the evidence and we can provide it in a way that's understandable and that informs what's going on on the ground. But that doesn't mean the evidence will, the evidence uptake is also, is always in a linear process. And so we've seen, for example, that our evidence has been able to help countries think about um, how to index uh, cash transfers to inflation so that they don't lose the real value over time. We've seen in a lot of countries where we work that there's a lot of inflation and over a period of one or two years the cash transfer can lose a lot of its value. We've seen that because of the evidence um, countries that started out with donor-funded programs um, for their cash transfer programs have included these in their national budgets and so countries are taking more responsibility for those programs. And we've seen this happen in Zambia, we've seen it happen in Ghana, in Kenya. Um, so we see that they are able to sometimes change the design of the program so to make the payments more consistent and reliable on a bi-monthly fashion or index them to inflation. We've seen that they've added these to the national budgets. And then we've also seen places where governments are seeing where the gaps are and they want to test some of these linkages and some of these complementary interventions to see what might work to make the cash go even further. And so we've worked very closely with governments who are interested in doing that in order to test new pilot projects within these government cash transfer systems and see how that works for adolescents and children. So in a way, they're very participatory and they're responding, not necessarily with new um, permanent programs, but uh, in trial programs to see what's working best in tandem with the research. Yeah, this is a very dynamic process. And policymaking takes a long time. And getting these programs introduced takes a long time. Doing impact evaluations around these programs takes two to five years. And so the timeline for the amount of change that you can see in a two-year period and a five-year period, it's not necessarily a brand new program that's up and running at the national scale, but it's working with existing programs to study how they're working, where are the gaps, how can policymakers make those programs better, then what are the limitations? What are those programs not achieving? And what complementary uh, interventions or initiatives are needed to make them achieve their goals? Okay, thank you. I'm going to pivot a little bit because you're actually here this week as part of our experts workshop on uh, GRASP, G-R-A-S-S-P, which is actually Gender Responsive and Adolescent sensitive social protection program that we're starting up here as a network with UNICEF Nocenti. Related to that, a lot of your work has increasingly focused on how caste transfers can affect gender dynamics. Where do you see this going and what do you hope that this research focus will achieve for the social protection field? This is a really exciting initiative and we have a group of researchers here at UNICEF in Ocenti that work on this intersection between the fields of social protection and gender. And it's a small but growing field and there's increasing awareness that in order to achieve the sustainable development goals, we need to take into account some of these gender-related aspects. So for example, SDG1 is around poverty reduction 
and SDG five is around women's equality. And so really in the field we're in this space where we're working, it's how these two intersect. And increasingly people are recognizing that you can't sustainably reduce poverty without addressing some of the gender inequitable outcomes and processes. And so really SDGs one and five are very interlinked. And that's really where this new agenda of research falls. So looking to see this new agenda really looks at the linkages between these two and trying to understand if we want to sustainably reduce or eliminate poverty, what are some of the barriers to that? What are some of the gender inequitable outcomes and how can that be addressed to better achieve the the objectives of social protection. So social protection is about policies and programs which aim to reduce poverty and vulnerability and social exclusion. And a lot of these are linked to inequalities between males and females. And so gender sensitive and gender responsive social protection programming is trying to understand where these barriers are. So there's a lot of adverse outcomes that happen throughout the life course. There may be inequitable access to schooling, inequitable access to health. When households experience shocks such as floods or droughts or death of an income-generating family member, they have to cope with that shock. And sometimes households are able to adapt positive coping strategies, and sometimes they adapt negative coping strategies. So a negative coping strategy might be skipping meals so children aren't receiving the nutrition they need. It might be marrying off an adolescent girl at an early age so you have one less mouth to feed. It can also lead to age disparate relationships or adolescent girls engaging in transactional sex or other types of risky behaviors in order to meet their material needs, their school fees, and things like that. So there are all these different types of gendered negative coping strategies, which contribute across the life course to their trajectories and their opportunities. It All of these negative coping strategies can impede their school attainment and their income generating potential in the future, and that in turn affects their own children. And so there's really this intergenerational cycle of poverty. And a lot of these, as I mentioned, these negative coping strategies can be very gendered. So one example might be early marriage for girls or hazardous work for boys. And looking at how these coping strategies are processes which contribute to gender unequal outcomes. And so social protection we know is aimed at reducing poverty, increasing resiliency so that households are better able to respond to these shocks, smoothing consumption so that and improving food security. And so social protection has a lot of potential to mitigate against these adverse outcomes, but we can't look at it in a gender-blind way. We have to understand how males and females are differentially affected by these shocks, how they have differential access to education, to social protection programs and its benefits. Once a household receives 
benefits from a social protection program? What is the decision-making process within that household? And so do all household members benefit equally? Or are there gendered processes in how households make those decisions and therefore who benefits? And so what we're trying to do is better understand what program design components can you tweak or can you add to a program that make these more gender responsive or more gender aware so that they don't first have unintended consequences and second how can they boost the impacts of these programs to really address some of these gender unequal outcomes which will ultimately help us achieve our social protection goals of reducing poverty and vulnerability and social exclusion. Thank you. Um, just building on that a little bit, uh, on the gender component, I think there's two really interesting components of our research that, that look at when we give cash transfers just to women, we've seen some really interesting effects on, on the recipients being, uh, looking at recipients of cash in, in a gendered way and then seeing what the impact of that is. Can you speak to that a little bit? And then, and then I want to ask about on the flip side of that, then we also see how cash transfers have um, some unique outcomes that only affect maybe adolescent girls, for example, in Malawi. We're seeing some positive mental health benefits from one of our studies there. So, so we're looking at research from the um, gendered point of view of who's receiving the cash, and then on the other side, um, how are genders differently impacted by the cash after the, the process has taken effect. So can you speak to the first part on, uh, on giving cash just to women and, and what we've seen there? Right, so the recipient of the cash transfer is one of those design components that policymakers have to decide who are they going to give the cash to. And in fact, a lot of the earlier cash transfer programs from Latin America specifically decided to give the cash to women because they believed that this would ensure that households would spend them in more child-friendly ways, so investing in health and investing in education. And then a secondary objective in some of those programs was related to empowering women. So the idea was if you give the cash to women, then you empower women. And so in fact, in Africa, a lot of the programs don't specifically give the cash to women. They give it to the household level. Some of the programs, for example, the Ghana Leap 1000 program, the person receiving the transfer is in fact a female who's either recently had a child or who is pregnant. And we did research around the Leap 1000 and Leap stands for Livelihood Empowerment Against Poverty. And we looked to see how that affected the household well-being, the well-being of women, and the well-being of children. And one of the interesting findings from that study was that cash transfers to the households targeted to these women had the effect of reducing intimate partner violence. So women who were receiving the cash were less likely to be experiencing, they were experiencing lower levels of intimate partner violence. They were experiencing violence less frequently. And that we, we also saw that women from monogamous households were more likely to report that they were not experiencing violence. And so this is interesting because the program did not set out to reduce violence against women. It was not a primary or a secondary objective of the program. But a lot of times these adverse outcomes that women face, that children face, 
are driven by poverty. They can be driven by the stress related to poverty or by other factors that are somehow linked to poverty. And so when you have these poverty reduction programs, they can have effects on broader outcomes in dimensions that are not directly related to primary objectives of social protection. So that was one interesting finding. In Zambia, we found that cash transfers targeted to households, so not necessarily targeted to the women, but just to the households in general, had the effect of increasing the number of decisions that women were reporting they were able to make in the households. So there was a small but significant effect on women's decision-making ability. We also found that women in these households were increasing their savings. They were more likely to be engaging in small businesses, what we refer to as non-farm enterprises. So it had empowering effects um, in financial domains. And we've also seen, for example, in Kenya, we saw that cash transfers to households had the effects among adolescent girls of delaying sexual debut and delaying pregnancy. So by addressing poverty and food security, you can have the knockoff effects of improving well-being in other dimensions that are very important for gender equality because we know that when girls are having early pregnancy, when they have early sexual debut, that can put them at risk of other negative outcomes and change the trajectory across, the, across their life course. Other researchers at Innocenti have recently found that the cash transfer program to households in Malawi was able to improve the mental health and well-being of adolescents living in those households. Right, that, and that's one of our... Um, newest research papers that's just come out uh, so you'll see that uh, on our website um, as one of the most recent papers we've just published uh, so thank you for clarifying all of that work um, I'm going to pivot again taking us away from gender um, and back to social protection research more broadly uh, to ask you in your time here what is one of the biggest challenges you've faced as a social protection researcher, and why? The work that we do is very, uh, it's a very close collaboration with governments and with country offices. And I would say one of the biggest challenges is also one of the biggest rewards in our work. So we are working on programs that are being implemented by governments at a large scale. And so our research really has the potential to impact a large number of lives. And we're working on timely issues, real world problems. And as a researcher, that's very exciting to be able to share your findings directly with policymakers and have them talk about those findings and reflect on those findings from the perspective of the programs they're implementing. What we do on our team is we do large-scale impact evaluations, trying to understand the effects that these programs are having on the well-being of children and families. And so one of the challenges that we have is around trying to understand in a rigorous way how we can identify the causal impacts of those programs. And so we try to understand how programs are being rolled out, when are they being rolled out, who are they being rolled out to? And so all of these 
are a puzzle and we have to try to understand based on all of these characteristics of the programs and how they're being rolled out, how can we rigorously evaluate them? So from an evaluator's perspective, if you can randomize who gets a program and who doesn't get a program, you can do a randomized control trial and that's oftentimes the easiest way to be able to attribute causal impacts to a program. But oftentimes that's not feasible. When you're working with governments, they're rolling out programs according to their priorities and according to the needs of their populations. And so we don't always have the option of randomizing those. And so we work with governments and we work with UNICEF country offices to come up with very rigorous alternative study designs. And sometimes those are quasi-experimental. So we often see programs that are rolled out in different ways and we're trying to understand how we can evaluate them. So sometimes it's challenging to be able to evaluate programs based on how they're being rolled out. At the same time, when we do come up with a, with a solution, it can be very rewarding. So that's one of the challenges that's related to just implementing the research. Another challenge sometimes is that we're able to provide very rigorous evidence and we see that governments are taking up that evidence and changing the program designs in a positive way or they're scaling up the programs. Other times we see that programs are scaled down or programs are reduced and so there are a lot of political challenges to maintain. Despite the evidence you mean maybe because of a funding issue or political reasons even though you're presenting all of these findings, you're saying sometimes you see the reverse effect that you were hoping for implemented on a policy level. Yeah, so what we were talking about earlier about how policymaking is not a linear process. Sometimes there's steps forward and sometimes there's steps back. And a lot of these decisions are not based strictly on the evidence, but are based due to political feasibility. There's a lot of political economy aspects to how programs are implemented and why. And so we see sometimes that there are very successful programs and then funding gets taken away from those programs. Or we see that there are successful components of programs that maybe governments don't want to continue to support because they feel like those are less politically attractive. And so there's definitely an evidence-informed aspect to policymaking, but there's also other political considerations, and so it's not always a straight line. Understood. So um, unfortunately, we're running out of time, and then before we close, I really want to ask for our listeners and for us, um, if you could share what you'll be working on next after you leave UNICEF and, um, and also uh, what will you miss the most? So I'll be continuing to work on research looking at linkages between social protection and health and well-being. I'll be continuing to work in this new and exciting field of gender and social protection. But I'll be doing all of this from a university. I'm going to be an associate professor at the University at Buffalo in the Department of Epidemiology and Environmental Health. I'm really looking forward to that new role, and I'm looking forward to maintaining these research networks and collaborations with colleagues here at UNICEF and at Innocenti. And what I've really enjoyed the most is the colleagues, and we have a, a really amazing group of researchers here at Innocenti who are 
doing great work. They're highly skilled in their fields, and they're just very passionate about the research that they're doing to improve the lives of children around the world. And so it's been such a privilege to be a part of this and to be here and to be able to work with people here at Innocenti, but also working very closely with our country office partners who are working very closely with families on the ground, who are working with governments. And so as a researcher, it's just been so exciting to be able to conduct rigorous research, but at the same time really see those links to programming and links to policy and have those dialogues and be sitting at the table uh, where we see our UNICEF colleagues in the field having those discussions and really thinking through these programs and these research questions and the implications of the evidence that we're producing for these programs and policies and improving the lives of children. So that's been such an exciting part of this job. It's been such a privilege, and I'm really going to miss that. Yeah, so thank you, Tia, for joining us one last time here on our podcast series. Um, I'm sure our listeners really enjoyed listening to all you had to share on your research on social protection, cash transfers, gender. And for more of that, you can continue to follow, follow Tia on uh, Twitter at Tia Palermo and also uh, with her work with our consortium, The Transfer Project, also on Twitter as Transfer Project, missing an E there. You can also continue to follow us for our updates on research on social protection cash transfers at UNICEF Inocenti on Twitter and facebook.com slash UNICEF Inocenti. So thank you all for joining us. Thank you again, Tia, for everything you've done for UNICEF Inocenti. We really appreciate all you've uh, you've contributed for our, our, our cash transfer research here. And we look forward to seeing what you do next. Thanks for having me.